Hello and welcome to another episode of Lost in Criterion. I'm John Patrick Owatari Dorgan. And with me, as always, is a man who always tries to El Cabong his way out of every bad situation. <laughs> I am the Adam Glass, and uh, yeah, uh, just uh, just swing that guitar. Yeah, it's uh, the perfect weapon. I love I love that scene because the the guitar is so clearly there for him to do that, yeah. but they still try to play like he just randomly grabbed it. It's very good. Yeah. <laughs> But I also uh, really admire the committal to like this is the tool I have to make right. my escape. It's like yes. this is this is a nothing. Like <laughs> this is this is there's other heavier right. objects and in he, this room. And he breaks it and threatens him with it like he's just broken a beer bottle. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Show me the exit. <laughs> uh, it's very good. It's so very good. See, I uh. think the most important lesson we should take from this is Never try to do illegal work in a country you don't speak the language of. <laughs> right, right, right. Frankly, that's the lesson. Just, that's going to end bad. Before we get into the movie, I do want to talk about our Patreon real quick. Patreon.com slash Lost in Criterion. Over there for a dollar a month, you can support us, keep us going, and get access to some bonus content. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah we, do a, we do a non-Criterion bonus episode over there every month, and uh, you get to vote on what the movie's going to be. I put together a list, sometimes with suggestions, so if you want to suggest a list, uh, join up. Just a dollar a month gets you access to the bonus episode and get you my ear. I mean, if you just want to like at tweet me uh, a bonus suggestion to also even if you're not a supporter, real I'll quick, probably take real it. quick thing, Adam will not mail you his ear. I will. That yeah, tier of Patreon yeah. is extremely high. <laughs> it's much. It's unnamed how high, but <laughs> yeah. let's you'll negotiate. Know, we'll we'll let you know when uh, you get there. <laughs> right, right. Uh, but yeah, we watch a uh, we watch uh, an interesting mix of movies over there. Some movies that should be in the Criterion Collection. Uh, one movie that later was in the Criterion Collection, uh, which is uh, Sidney Lumet's Failsafe. Um, but uh, we watched some Eclipse stuff over there that you know is outside of the realm of Lost in Criterion's purview of spine-numbered Criterion movies. And we watched just a lot of garbage. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> hot garbage. No, we've watched, we've watched an interesting mix of movies over there. Recently, we did uh, a list that was... Uh, our supporters voted on uh, which of the uh, Richard Pryor, Gene Wilder collaborations uh, we'd watch, and we ended up watching uh, one which of one them. Was it? Stir crazy for that. Um, <laughs> we've also watched uh, Kicking and Screaming, the Will Ferrell movie, on a list that was uh, movies that share titles with Criterion releases, which is which really, really probably ill-conceived list. when we really get down to it. It was a it was a really fun list. It was not a great movie. Uh, at all. Uh, but yeah, we have a lot of fun over there. And if you want to hear those episodes or just uh, support us, just $1 a month, get you in on that. For a little extra, $5 a month, we like to thank those supporters on air. So thank you so much to Stephen Goldmeyer and to Eric Coronado. Yes, thank you. 
who have been supporting us at $5 a month. And a little above that, we do something that I think is pretty dang special. Pat makes a piece of art based on one of the movies we've watched recently. And I got that uh, printed up on a postcard. And for $10 and above, we mail that with a little personalized thank you note off to those supporters. So if you like mail, if you like bespoke art, uh, $10 and above is, uh, is where to go on that. Right. We also like to thank those supporters on air. So thank you so much to Michael McGrath, to Chris Otto, to Patrick Yako, Jason Westhaver, and Adam Speakerman for your supports at that level. If you want to see the postcards, or if you've received one and want to buy a another copy, an old <laughs> one, to m- mail it to your uh, to your grandma, yeah. uh, head over to uh, redbubble.com and search for Lost in Criterion, and you can see the past catalog of uh, of postcards. And you can also scope but out what plagiarism s- looks like. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you just search for Criterion on Redbubble, you will certainly see a lot, a lot of examples. A lot of plagiarism. Like a lot, not, a lot. Not saying... Actually, not even Not plagiarism. saying that some of just ours don't qualify. theft. Right. Just, I, every so often, it's the 29th, and I go into a fugue <laughs> state, and something that the borders you know, on plagiarism comes out. Right. Most of the time, that's not what happens. I think most of ours are free and clear, definitely pure yeah. art. Uh, but I'm some talking. Of the there's quite a few Bibles things that criterion. are just literally the cover of a Criterion, right? right. DVD as a sticker, as a sticker, right. and it's like, now wait, now you don't own the rights to that, right? Right. Anyway, uh, if you do want to support us directly, though, uh, Patreon.com/slash Lost in Criterion. But you can also buy a sticker. That's cool. I, I support that. Idea. I mean, yeah, you can go there and buy. I think some of my draw, some of my artists would make pretty good stickers. Right. So you know, absolutely. Uh, this week we are definitely uh, definitely switching gears from the uh, Japanese erotica that we've been watching for the last little bit, and the uh, the science is fiction that would have been last week. Uh, but uh, but what is Tom? The hit, really? right? But what is time? Uh, the hit is a British gangster movie slash uh, Spanish road movie um, directed by Stephen Frears. Um, Frears uh, largely worked in television prior to this, uh, but uh, but did go on to make a few movies you would probably recognize. Uh, I think you're giving me a lot of credit. I guarantee you've seen at least one of his movies. Okay. He directed High Fidelity. Well, see and like are different things. <laughs> I didn't say you liked it. I, I said you was saw it. kind of, I sort of, you had such a big grin on your face that I mentally transformed scene into like, hey, the, Pat, there might be a movie you like in here. Uh, no, no, no. That big grin, that big grin was, hey, Pat, I'm about to mention a movie that I know you hated. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he also directed The Queen, the 2006. Uh, Queen Bioptics starring uh, Helen Mirren. Um, I mean, I, I assume that was a thing. I didn't know it was a thing. but While we won't ever be watching High Fidelity for the Criterion Collection, I don't believe. Uh, but, you know, the future is unseeable and always surprising. I mean, uh, the, we do the have... likelihood of High Fidelity getting into the Criterion Collection is extremely high. <laughs> As time goes on, certainly. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> What's that? Some no, sort of time... entropy model? Or like all things, all things t- trend towards Criterion Collection on a long enough right. timeline. <laughs> Right, on a long enough timeline, every movie will be in the Criterion Collections. 
It's obviously true. Anyway, we will see one other Frears movie in the future at uh, Spying Number 767, so uh, six years from now. Uh, we will watch My Beautiful Laundrette, which is the film he made directly following this, uh, which really seems actually very interesting. Um, but we'll be so it's, old. Uh, it is from uh, from 1984, and it's like a, a culture class comedy about a uh, Pakistani uh, son of immigrants living in South London who opens an upscale laundromat and... Uh, with the support of Daniel Day Lewis playing his skinhead best friend, I'm I'm uh, in. I mean, I'm on board. This sounds amazing. And uh, they they may be lovers, uh, from what I can tell. I really from, hope from, so. From brief brief interaction, so uh, it definitely seems like a very interesting movie. Not that the hit wasn't. The hit is actually. Also, yeah, I mean, we're gonna ass- assume we're gonna yeah. talk about that pretty soon. Um, right, right. Like now, how about? Um, I mean, if this, you say uh, so. This is a movie, uh, it it stars a bunch of people we've seen before. Uh, John Hurt, uh, I, I, you know, I'm sure you know who John Hurt is. Yeah, uh, I mean, I can't, play, wh- uh, I can't place where we actually saw any of these people in movies for the Criterion Collection. It's more well, of one of those, well, like, I know all these actors, but like... Yeah, here's, here's interesting. Uh, Terrence Stamp and Tim Roth, actually, will go to our bonus episodes. I don't know that we've seen either of them in actual Criterion releases, uh-huh. uh, but Terrence Stamp we saw pretty recently because he plays Zod in the Superman movies, the Christopher Reeve, looking very different with yeah. the goatee and the black hair. Wow. Uh, yeah. But I, uh, Really? Yeah. Uh, and then Tim Roth... Um, Ended up uh, in some Tarantino films, including Reser- uh, Reservoir Dogs. Yeah. Uh, but we saw him. We saw him in a bonus episode. Uh, he was the bellhop in Four Rooms, which we watched uh, oh, okay. a couple years ago on the. Bonus I remember episodes. that. I remember yeah. that. Roughly. Yeah. John Hurt. I can't think of anything that we've seen him in, but uh, he was in Doctor Who a little bit ago. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean I, like I said, I recognize the actors. It's just, I mean, like whether right. or not. The problem is, is that we've watched so many Criterion films combined with, like, my own personal viewing habits that, like, I have more of what we would call a miasma than I have an actual right. memory at this point of movies. Uh, they're all just sort of floating around in there. Every so often they catch on fire and turn into a sign. <laughs> right. Right. Um The music for this movie, well, the intro, the opening intro to this movie. is <laughs> is the most Eric Clapton, Eric Clapton song ever, <laughs> ever made. Right. Uh, created by noted racist Eric Clapton. I, and uh, One has to admire that you wouldn't have to tell us that that was an Eric Clapton song for us to know that's really an Eric Clapton song. Like, right. It's like just so, it's, it's like woof. The beautiful thing about this Eric Clapton song is that Eric Clapton wrote it. And gave it to Stephen Frears and told him to do whatever he wanted with it. So Frears had this song Just like and the rights around. to it before the movie happened. That's so perfect. Well, and then, and then <laughs> exclusively made costume decisions based on the fact that he had the song. It's like, you know what? Somebody <laughs> is wearing a goddamn white, uh, white uh, like rayon suit in this fucking movie. Yeah. Um. Roger Waters apparently also worked on the song. Um, but the majority of the music through the movie is uh, Spanish flamenco guitar. Right. 
uh, done by Paco de Lucia. Which is very enjoyable. It's very fun. It's very good. It is hyper Uh, different from the Eric Clapton song, but. (laughs) Right, right, right. Absolutely. But yeah, just the fact that Clapton wrote it and just like gave it to him with with no intention. It's so weird. Uh, That is like, who does? uh, Whatever. Eric Clapton is Uh, his own mystery. This movie is inspired. The writer uh, read a Ambrose Bierce uh, short story about a Confederate spy who is really cool and calm and collected until they move up his ex- execution. Um, okay. He did not name what story that was, and I cannot find what story that was. I, I, I did mean, search a little bit. I mean, that's kind of a needle in a haystack, though, there with the, with the right. Ambrose Bierce stories. <laughs> like, it sounds it's right. A, there's a lot of beer stuff that that sort of centers around Confederate spies about to be executed. Yeah, so, and I mean, um, like, there's so many of them. I mean, it's yeah, I'm sure it's it just, is. It's, it's probably it is in really a collection hard. that was published at some point, and probably is, you know, like with those like Ambrose Bierce like story collections and stuff like that. It probably was in print, and then like they took it out in the re- in later editions of collect. You know what I mean? Right. Ambrose Bierce right. wrote a lot it's of stories just, of memory serves. It's also just really hard to get beyond occurrence at Owl Creek if you're searching right. Ambrose Bierce Confederate execution. Right. So uh, finding finding the right details to get around. Right. right. Yes. Occurrence to, to navigate is, those uh, waters. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. It's a little difficult. Uh, also based on uh, on some some pulled from the headlines true stories. Uh, the. Uh, the most famous early supergrass that is uh the british term they apply to to parker in this movie uh the uh the massive turncoat police informant um the very first big one who informed on 35 people went to jail because of his uh or prison because of his uh his testimony it is from his case in reality that they pull the we'll meet again singing Oh, okay. That is a thing that really happened, where where after their conviction, all the all the people he informed on stood up in the in the uh, defendant's booth and sang "We'll Meet Again" as a as a vague threat against the guy, um, which is very interesting too. And basically, the writer uh, had beers on the mind and heard that story and decided to to write something that it could all come together. Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, that it works. <laughs> it's good. Good job. Yeah. I I did watch uh this movie with commentary, which is very interesting because just because of the the sheer amount of disparate people. Like they they've edited in and out everybody talking about this movie, but it's it's literally it's it's Frears, it's John Hurt, it's Tim Roth. It's uh, they don't get. <laughs> I'm kind of surprised they don't just have Eric Clapton in there too. <laughs> just uh, I think I think writer Peter Prince is in there. Uh, I think uh, Mike Malloy, the cinematographer, might be in there. Um, I can't really the remember who all is on the list, but uh, but they're also uh, only Frears and one other guy are in the room together. Everybody else is just talking about the movie independently, <laughs> uh, which have not. Not wholly uncommon for Criterion right. commentaries, but it's still just weird whenever I experience it of, of you know, editing See, that together. Uh, yeah, as... I mean, 
yeah, the commentaries are always a little bit strange. My favorite are, and it doesn't happen very often, where they just get someone, like one person, like a single actor or something to do it. And yeah. it's like, those are my favorite because they're always like so specifically that person's point of view on this. Uh, yeah. But, you know. Roth, Roth is real interesting because he this is one of his first actual film roles. He'd been in some television work prior. I think he'd been in a couple of movies prior, but just really nothing this substantial of a role. Uh, Joe Strummer of The Clash was originally supposed to play Myron. What? But the rest of The Clash wouldn't let him. <laughs> like when they... What? when. uh when both Roth and Frears talk about it, they essentially say, yeah, Cla- Joe, Joe said the boys wouldn't let him do it. Um, like, but yeah, the rest of the band wouldn't let him. So Frears or one of the producers asked Strummer himself who they should get to replace him. And Strummer said, get that skinhead, uh, referring to a TV role Roth had just been on. They had never met. What? And Joe what? Strummer what? said, what? hey... Get Tim Roth because I saw him in this movie without even knowing his name. Adam, like, what what are movies? <laughs> it's just so weird, man. I love it so like, much. Like how like, how did it actually happen? Because that can't like, be how it actually happened. It is absolutely how it happened. Like every like Adam, we've been doing this podcast for too long. Uh, once every five to six movies, uh, maybe once every ten. There's just some fucking batshit insane story where it's like, well, so we got the lead actor because the director was drunk in a bar in upstate <laughs> New York uh, and stole and took the wrong guy's car uh, out of the parking lot and, and totaled it on a tree. And then the person who stopped the- to rescue him on the side of the road was Daniel Daly's. Or some dumb <laughs> shit like that. And you're like, fuck right. you. Like, right. don't, like, yeah, probably, but, like, nothing makes any goddamn sense. Just, just make something up. Yeah. Make something up because that like, doesn't make sense. Just do that. Just just totally make shit up. It doesn't matter. Who cares? Just do whatever yeah, you want. I mean, that's one of, one of the, like, beneficial parts of it, they being them being separate commentary tracks that are edited together is that Frears tells the story of Joe Strummer and then Roth gets to tell his version of it completely uh-huh. disconnected. Right. It's like, yeah. I, I like it's a, it's almost like some sort of weird police interrogation where like, oh, we get all the different right. we get we Rashomon right. this shit. Right. right. Except except in this instance, nothing Rashomon's because they're both telling the same yeah, story. Yeah, they're both telling the same story. They got that we, yeah. we gave them too much time to keep the story straight. Another really great bit in the movie where uh where separate stories sort of come together is that uh, when Roth is first introduced in the movie, he mentions that he had never driven before, that he had never, (laughs) this was his first time on an airplane. This was his first time driving a car. He got his license to drive, to drive in the movie. Uh, And, and he talks like he had never been outside of Britain prior to this movie either. Um, and uh, and he says uh, that actually led to a bit of a problem, which I'll tell tell you about when we get there. Uh, so we come around to the scene at the windmills, and and Frears gets to talk about it first, if I remember correctly, the way they edited it. Uh, and uh, when they reset the scene to reshoot it, an assistant director 
would uh or a PA or some someone low would pull the car back around right. to put it in position. And uh and after take five or six, Freer said, uh, Tim, why don't you just drive the car, save a little time? So <laughs> God. So Terrence Stamp Terrence Stamp and John Hurt are in the backseat of the car and Tim Roth uh is driving it and accidentally hits the accelerator instead of the brake. Mm-hmm. Uh, rams the camera dolly. Uh, so the crew's chasing the camera, camera as it's rolling died. away. No one, no one died. No one injured. Uh, the Roth does say that uh, just really offhandedly, uh, as the kidnappers are escaping at the beginning, um, and Juan gets hit by the car. The police officer uh, Parker's uh-huh. protection. Uh. Roth, the only one who mentions it very offhandedly, says, that guy broke his pelvis, and then moves on. Jeez. Anyway. Anyway. Um, so so he, hits the, he hits the camera dolly with the car, and, uh, and everybody's trying to chase the camera that's rolling away now um, to, to get the film. And, uh, and I guess the only, like, the, somebody from the production studio pops up to just uh, talk about insurance. Um, <laughs> and here's a little blurb about because they insurance. dented the car. Because they dented the car. Anyway, it's very silly. I do. The commentary is entertaining and and very informative. And I do. I'm sure we'll we'll talk more about other things in the commentary as we talk more about the I'm film. I'm sure. Um, but uh, but yeah, it's just uh, it's a phenomenally acted film. It's such a weird sort of disparate. Because it really is fully a British gangster movie, and it really is fully a weird road movie. <laughs> and, yeah, I mean, and they're it, just well, it stapled has a, together. I can't, I can't <laughs> pull it, but like, it has a vibe that it. It's also weird. Like, it's even more than that, though, because it's yeah. also about like emotion. It's more. It's. I mean, all all road movies are of certain levels of scale about emotional journeys, but like, like. I I have a, a a mental theory about this movie that I dev, that is like because it's it's also talking about this weird sort of state of like resignation in you know in Myron or not in Myron in um fuck what's the name of the character in Will Parker uh, in, yeah Parker thank you Willie Parker yeah um and like what and what leads into that and then how that is sort of bullshit but then like we it, that feeds back in a sort of cycle on to, to John Hurt who does sort of accept things at the end after he's been shot and right. um my pet theory is that we have four people in a car and they all represent individual stages of a single person okay okay it's, it's like uh, Alanis Morissette's ironic video okay yes uh exactly thank you uh so like but like no because we each one of them is that sort of a could be understood as a as a sort of phase along the same journey because uh like maggie is sort of could be essentially willie's character pre like pre becoming a gangster essentially like it it, she's she knows what's up but she's not I think in a lot of ways that the two young people and the two older people are sort of uh, the same pathway that has branched. Uh, differently. Could be yes, um, 
I could also see it as the same journey though, because either I think it works either way. Because like Myron is sort of could be the sort of gung ho person who got Willie into the positions right, at the beginning. Right. That Willie, obviously, Willie does a bunch of, or Parker does a bunch of bad shit, right? And he's at some point was in theory probably quite gung ho about it, right? And then Braddock is sort of the old timer who's still doing the job, but like isn't really as is no longer gung ho about it, right? It's just like right. the thing he does now. And Parker's kind of retired from it, like given up on it. Right. Uh which is, you know, like kind of we watch Braddock kind of do that at the very end, where he sort of just I mean, it's always been an escape plan, but he's like it has a feeling of sort of finality. You kind of get the impression that Braddock's not going to do this anymore. He's just right. fucking done. This was the last straw. I'm just not doing this anymore. Uh, yeah. Well, he's also, he's brought on this assistant he's training who is a complete noob at it, right? Well, and, also just, a, and also just not, probably and not, not what Braddock wants, right? Like, <laughs> right. like oh, I, you're going to be my apprentice. And it's just like, well, yeah, what did you expect from a dude who's willing to sign up to be a professional killer? Yeah. Right. There's a there's an entire backstory of how they got together. Oh, yeah. That I actually might be interested in exploring. Oh, I would totally. Like, like you could actually like make often, a prequel to this movie, and I would be pretty interested right. to know. Right. Obviously, they can't make a sequel to it since everyone's dead. Right, but, right. <laughs> of course. But, like, think about the fact that they had to, those two had to drive to fucking Spain together. Yeah. Assuming they didn't take the plane, right. but yeah. Well, well, interesting. Actually, John Hurt and uh, Tim Roth flew together. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> there were, you go. They're the only ones together on the plane. Um, but yeah. Anyway, uh, <laughs> but yeah, it, which you know, it's kind of interesting that they have they have that rapport of having never met before they were on the plane coming over together, and it's very clear their characters haven't known each other that long. Uh, and Roth obviously looks very much up to uh, John Hurt and and Terrence Stamp as established right. actors yeah. to this guy who's just getting into the game. So, you know, there's a lot of sort of parallels in Roth coming to the movie right. as with Myron coming to the events of the movie. Um, I talk about them being dichotomies because it's, it's interesting that, you know, um, uh, Maggie is from the streets in as much as we can believe anything we know about Maggie. Um, she's obviously a grifter because she's absolutely not 15 years old. Yeah. I mean, she's uh, actually, yeah. I mean, she's actively right. certainly and like taking this she lied to, fucking old she Australian lied to dude Harry. for like what right. all he's worth. Right. 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 But, yeah. Um, yeah. And then, you know, on the, on the flip side of that, Myron is this young impulsive, like soccer hooligan who has somehow gotten a job as an apprentice hitman. Right. <laughs> and then, you know, uh, I really feel like um, Parker and Braddock are, you know, Braddock is what Parker would have become if he didn't at some point decide to turn, right, and get out of the game. Right. Uh, he would have been as run down, as desperate to get someone else to take over so he could leave sort of thing i really think i don't know no um, i agree I, but totally, i think what you say I makes sense too, too. I, I agree with your your sort of synopsis as well i mean i think it all kind of is all sort of 
different sides of the same coin in that sense, right? Like, the idea is, with this movie, the part that makes it especially a road movie is to just put all these people who shouldn't be in a car together in a right, car together right. and make them go somewhere. Uh, throw in yeah. the extra tension that two of them want to murder the other. Well, everybody wants to murder everybody, basically. <laughs> right, 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 right. When I, it's it's right. possible that Parker legitimately does not want to murder well, any of them. Well, and the that's what's interesting, right? Like Parker's a really interesting character because the last moment, his last moments alive, are really fascinating, right? Because right. he he's throughout the entire movie had this sort of like floating through the world feeling, right? Like. And yeah, then, but never one that we trusted as an audience. It was no, always that's absolutely always true. while watching it, we thought he is trying to get under He's their waiting, skin and yeah. trying to get them off guard so he can punch Myron and run into the woods. Right, on which one he of never does. Stops. And so right. what which he what never we, does. So what we get to is a really interesting question in the last moments of the movie, which is is he was he truly floating through the world, sort of resigned to his fate, and then he cracks at the very end. That's sort of like the, the the classic like there's no atheist in a foxhole nonsense right right um, right a place where you can notably find a lot of atheists um <laughs> uh but like or better than I'll, a fox in your atheist hole for sure <laughs> well you know that's why I, that's where that's why we always wear full clothing in my house um <laughs> but like no the other option is that like so that's one of them right like he cracks at that last second like it, it could be the fact that like Right, he really wasn't truly prepared. B, he had prepared himself mentally for a very specific time, which is when he gets to Paris, which is possible, right? Like right. change of plans can really fuck you up, right? Especially if the change of plans right. involves right. you right. dying, um, dying six hours earlier than you had planned. Right, yeah. right. You built a mental timeline, and that's not what it is anymore. Um, or number three, which is he's counting on these guys being such absolute fuck-ups that he doesn't need to do anything, it'll all be sort of, like, ironed out in the fact that these assholes have to cross the border and then drive another six, <laughs> drive another, like, right. six hours through France or whatever without fucking it up bad enough to get caught by the police who are obviously getting closer and closer at every moment. Right. Or, and... There's a, there's a little subtle thing in the apartment where Parker has something I can't tell what is in his hand, mm. and he drops it and kicks it under a side table. Right. Where where it implies maybe subtly, and there's not enough actual text to suggest, there's barely enough subtext to suggest whether or not this is happening, but sort of this implication that he is trying to make sure the police know all of these crimes are related. Right, which he is, right? Like, we know that, him. like, he right. is doing that, right? Like, right. that's not the only... T- like, what I mean, though, is even if he's not necessarily trying to make all the crimes be easily traceable to him, he right. is constantly trying to goad these two people into committing unnecessary crimes. Right, right. That, that, that A, slow down their progress... But B, also, like, just make the whole ride messier in the sense that, like, they just constantly are leaving a trail. That, like, it doesn't take a fucking genius detective yeah. to fucking follow that trail. Like, even if you're, like, oh, speak- even if you don't know they're all connected, like, boy, man, there was another murder three three hours from here. Maybe yeah. we should go check that out. <laughs> Actually, speaking of uh, of genius detectives, I forgot to mention our detective is Fernando Ray. Uh 
and while he barely talks in this movie, uh, he is in basically all the Bunel films uh, in Spain, like the the big three. He's uh, one of the aristocrats in. Uh, oh yeah, okay, yeah, all right, yeah. No, uh, I see it. Okay. Uh, yeah, goodness, I can't. I I always want to say the importance of being earnest or or something like because it's a really long title and I just can't remember what the what the friggin' Bunel film is called. Oh, I don't. Uh, I always feel dumb when I can't remember the name of the discreet charm of the bourgeoisie. Oh, see, like, <laughs> that's the, the I, problem is is that I yeah. never forget that one, and so I'm like, what one's right. Adam looking for? It must not be the one what, I, what could, could, I can't forget. Right. Yeah. Anyway, so Fernando Reyes in a bunch of Bunel films, too. Um, so you might have recognized him, even though he's barely in this movie enough to recognize. So. Right, I mean, you see his face, and he looked familiar, anyway. but, like, you yeah. know, we but, know how bad I am at this stuff. But anyway, there. I mean, there's maybe another possibility that there is some sort of, you know, he seems so intent on getting them caught before he crosses the border that that seems like it's got to be the plan. But there is there is maybe also other contingencies like he's got he's got something in Paris that he thinks will get him out or he thinks that if he actually talks to the boss, yeah, I mean, it in could person, be a million he things, might be able right? to talk him. Yeah, 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 for sure. Like, I mean, there's that. There's like, there's yeah, it could be anything, right? Like, maybe he had long enough to like get a phone call off or something at one right, point. Right, like, right. he is, you know, I mean, the fact that he doesn't run away when they're in the woods is like a clear indication that like it's hard to say, right? Like, again, it could be also that he's just made his peace with the whole thing. Right. Maybe he really and, has and, made his and peace then, like, and he just gets to the freaks last second, out. and he's like, "This is not what we talked about." I'm supposed right. to die by the man I betrayed kind of thing or something like that. You know right, what I mean? Like, right, right. Maybe he feels a little bit, I mean, he talks about feeling a little guilty about the whole thing. So it's also right. possible. When they bring he it had, up, he definitely. Right. And so it's also possible. He's like, I he want breaks. this person right. who I betrayed to be sort of, it feels fitting or something. You know what I mean? Like that people get like that sometimes, right? So who knows? But I mean, it makes for a very fascinating character because he's completely, uh, sort of inscrutable, right? Right. Which is a nice character to have in a road movie. Uh, <laughs> right. The enigma just sort of rolling around. Uh, and not in the goofy sort of like crime novel sort of way where you're like trying to figure out like did this person do a bad thing or something, but just this person right. that like nobody in the car can get a handle on like at all. Yeah. Well, that that actually brings up another – Another aspect. This is also very much a neo noir. It is probably the yeah. the sunniest neo noir we've ever yeah, seen. Absolutely, but, yes. But it's definitely a noir movie too. Um, yeah, it's just it's got a lot of interesting disparate parts that are all working together really well. I think you know. Yeah, no. And totally. they talk about it in the commentary that maybe it could be tighter if they made it today. It would be a little different here and but there. But I don't but, think I would like it tighter. The sort of yeah. to a certain like first of all, I was enthralled throughout the entire movie i never absolutely i was never in any way felt like i needed it to be tighter and it being a little loose as this makes especially parker's character more exciting to watch for me because the movie itself also sort of feels like it's sort of meandering and floating through this like yes it's just loose enough that you're like we are in a road movie. If you made it tighter, it would just become a pure action movie, and that would break it. 
It would no longer have that cat. Despite the fact that this is about a person who's going to be murdered, it has a very right. calm feeling to it. Right. Like, like when for, and, and which gets to be contrasted against, for example, Myron like exploding at times and like, but like even then, like it doesn't, it feels more like the sort of like those that that particular kind of road movie where like there's that guy who wants to like cause trouble and do pranks and stuff. Then it then it does like oh these are stone cold hard hard ass killers right, who are going right. to murder this man. Um, yeah, something something like in Bruges obviously owes a lot to this movie too. Right. Right. Yes. Absolutely. Um, yeah. You know, uh, the the younger hitman in that is not quite as impulsive in the narrative. Right. But but it is it is something he impulsively did prior to the narrative that uh that sets off the action of in Bruges, right? Right. Well it also uh, has that that sort of that deconstructed, like new sort of neo noir, like deconstructed crime narrative where you're like you have all those elements in there but they it doesn't right. it's you know, we get it with heist movies, but there's heist movies that are like this. There are like you know Movies like this, which is a, basically a hit, like a, a um, like a, um, what you call it, like a, I don't know what you would call this kind of movie exactly, but like, mm-hmm. it, 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 it is that feeling of like I know all the pieces in this, right? But they're not exactly assembled the way they're meant to be assembled. Uh, and you and even know the inevitable in conclusion of this. Yeah, absolutely, right? totally. Yeah. And I feel like that's true in, in Bruges too. You know, absolutely. You know how this has to end, right? And maybe you're surprised. Maybe you'll be surprised, and it won't end that way, right? Um, right. You know the what. You may not know exactly the how, but like in this one, you have no illusions that Parker is going to actually get out of this. Right. Like right. there's I don't, you, you maybe you maybe hold out the tiniest bit of hope. But not really because of the noir sort of feeling to it. You're like, no, 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 no. The police are not going to get to it in time. That's not happening. Right. But the movie just gives you just enough of a feeling of that that you can, like, play along a little bit, too. You can also kind of, like, fool yourself a little bit and be like, hey, you never know, though. It may it may shock me. It may surprise me. But you're like, he's going to die. Like, this is how this is going to end. And actually, what you're waiting for is him to, like, make his move, which is... The actual sort of surprise right. in the movie is going to get them move, to kill him faster, right? right. Which, yeah. which is right, which would have resulted in his death, but we never get right. Which is really right. the be- the most exciting part about the movie is that like it all is very anticlimactic for him, right. which is what the most beautiful part about it is. That it just fucking it ends in a whimper. It's just nothing. He's just done. Um, when did this come out? Eighty four. Yeah, um, eighty four. I mean, the soundtrack would indicate. And I was, yeah. yeah, well, obviously. Well, I, I was going to say, I think it's it's interesting to the inevitable conclusion of this movie that the first time we are in uh, Parker's house as he returns from the bike ride before, I mean, you can see it still as the kidnappers show up, but before the kidnappers show up, well, we get that shot of John Lennon <laughs> yeah, a picture of John Lennon on the wall that is uh, lightened in this halo of sunlight. Yeah, um, 
uh, you know, uh, a man who had just been assassinated a couple of years before the movie started or before the movie was made. So, uh, well, and he even makes reference to it in his description of like why he's so relaxed about it all. And right. um, Right. I love that he just carries that John Donne poem around with him. Yeah, it's like, oh, yeah. I saw this, saw this in the newspaper once, but uh, it really—it's like, all he doesn't ver- bother memorizing it. Yeah, it's all very in character. It. <laughs> yeah, it's very good. Uh, yeah, it's just—it's. I was amazed at how engulfed, how quickly I became engulfed in this. Absolutely, movie, yeah. actually. Um, because even, even before it really moved off the rails into something other than what I might have assumed it was. Um, just with like that, that first cop or whatever sitting in the front of his car, the way he pulls the gun into frame and is loading the bullets and the kid staring at it. Yeah. You're like, Oh, this is the hit right now. Like it's all going to start right here and it's not right. Yeah. It's just, yeah, it's very, it's very interesting. And then the, Parker's introduced and the other cop slaps the book out of his hand and he just calmly picks it up. And then that whole courtroom scene is just, you know, he's obviously like the, the barrister is leading him completely in a way that is so blatant. Yeah. It's like, and you're not doing this because we promised you something. Right. Like, oh. Oh, yeah, I remember now. No, I am doing this of my own free accord because it sounds like the right thing to do. <laughs> yeah. It, I mean, yeah. and what's what's really fascinating, right, is that, like, at that moment in the movie, presuming you haven't seen the movie or um, read anything about it, like, the next thing that happens in that movie is hyper unexpected. Right. Like, you expect something, right? You're like, okay, this is going to be about him in hiding or whatever. You do not expect to then cut to him in Spain. Right. Like, just, like just relaxing on the, you know, like walking down the yeah. street or whatever it is. And, of course, you know, we we actually start the film with that, that insert shot from, from the future of the narrative. Right, but it's meaningless of, uh, to us at that time. We have no yeah. right. zero context. We can't even tell who it is. It's... And when we first get to Spain, we get we get uh, a funeral scene that is at least mirrored in the funeral, if it's not the exact same. I think it's just the same scene. Thing playing, yeah. yeah. That is that is Parker's funeral. Um, we just the second time we get to it, we know what it is. Right. Um, so yeah, you know, it plays with time a little bit at the very start, which is not something it needed to do, but I think the. Well, it's that sort of that book ending, think, right? Like it's fine, it's nice because it's it, got like, that right. The echoes in the book ending are something, but I don't know. There's a reason I think of the opening scene of this movie as that gun coming into frame. Instead yeah, me of too. I mean, yes, what it yeah, actually absolutely. started with, right? Like, I mean, because you could is... lose that that um, that funeral scene at the beginning. Have the gun, you know, do the courtroom, and then go straight to Spain and just be like in Spain, and it's fine it didn't yeah. need it but like you know it's uh i mean i guess if you were gonna say anything about it right you just want to tell your audience very clearly right at the beginning like look this motherfucker's gonna die <laughs> he's yeah. doomed there is no world where he walks away from this here's a funeral right, right, in case right. you were wondering yeah uh but you know i mean it yeah i don't know like the movie just plays with tension in just such a really interesting way 
because you have a character who is presumably totally not tense about a very tense and all the people all the roles are reversed right like everybody who should yeah. be tense is te- not tense and everybody who isn't tense should be who you know what i mean like everybody it's opposite right the mur- the, pres- the the soon to be murderer victim not tense well at least as far as we yeah. can tell is either that or a very good actor incredibly relaxed even before he's before danger is put like while he's living in spain yeah he's got this police escort but they're like friends and he's waving for him to join him and you know when the chain pops off he he cheekishly circles back and then rides on home and leaves the guy which is you know his downfall too uh but (laughs) leads directly to his downfall right but but he's super you know he's super relaxed in spain which is just kind of weird too like why why and like why why is the why does the police officer enjoy this duty too because you're just i think it's it's fascinating though right because that's the one sort of part of the movie that lends true credence the idea that he is absolutely relaxed right there's no way he doesn't believe they're not going to try to take revenge because as far as we can tell like the the sentence is only like a whatever a 10-year sentence or something at most right like he knows that like he has to know what time it is right like he just has to um, and he's relaxed, and you you can't possibly be from certainty of his survival. So it's got to be from something, right? So then, if you take that into account, that it's it's possibly real, total like acceptance of the situation, then the entire ride is just him fucking with them, right? Like it doesn't even necessarily have a deeper meaning. It's just like, oh, I'm just gonna fuck with these assholes all the way to my death, right? Which is fascinating. Continually, as well. everywhere. Yeah, like, it's like it's when he's never gonna stop. Like I'm when he says, the whole time. when he introduces himself to Harry, and says, "You probably read about me in the paper." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and Harry immediately, all the blood leaves his face. I didn't see the paper. I don't know what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah. Uh, it's so good. It's so yeah. I mean, Harry is obviously an incorrigible, terrible person who believes he is dating a 15 year old. Right. Uh, uh, and it's the sort of guy where, where, see, and he even knows because he's like, guess how old she is, and and Myron goes, I don't know, nineteen. He goes, would you believe sixteen? Would you believe fifteen? Right, right. And Harry, uh, Harry would believe fifteen, but she's obviously in her twenties. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, Harry, Harry, <laughs> Harry is just such a bad person and also just intense idiot. That is, it is. Yeah. It's it's weird because you wouldn't expect like honestly speaking, the movie does a lot of work for you to make to make sure you do not feel bad when they have to go back and murder Harry. <laughs> right, right. It's right. like I, we're all gonna be fine with this by the time this happens. Uh, yeah, because you know. And then if you contrast that with like sort of, for example, the only real brutal murder we see in this movie, like I mean, we see the guys get blown up, but they're kind of non characters, right? Like we don't get very committed to them as people the only one that's really upsetting is the gas station attendant right oh the the only person who's who's legit just has this sort of like awful cold-blooded murder thing going on right like obviously again harry is murdered in cold blood also but no one feels bad like i don't know why anybody (laughs) in our in our very brief interaction with the gas station attendant he has impotently attempted to save the girl 
he's has maybe run inside the to only call good the person in the movie as far as like right. who actively does a thing that is good, like just straight up good. Right. I mean, if right. we don't, we gotta discount the police officers because like they're they're not really characters at all either. Um, right. Not really. The police plus the, all the cops gas station. Well, yeah. Uh, but like the gas station attendant becomes a character very quickly and very abruptly ends in a way that is very upsetting, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um That's fair. Yeah, Harry Harry don't feel bad, but I will say when they cut back to the police at Harry's apartment, uh that was more gore than I was expecting. Well, uh, the movie does have more like between that and the gas station and absolute you're like, yeah. "Holy shit, this movie is like Especially Yeah. Especially the uh the bloody toupee sitting yeah. <laughs> as if he's been scalped. Right. Is, and it is, has <laughs> Is some like really extra, dark extra humor thing. to it. Yeah. yeah. It's, yeah. it's, yeah, it's, yeah. Um, you know, like any good road comedy, it is also a movie where the driver is, uh, frequently encountering, uh, comedic setbacks. Like they show up at the apartment and Harry's there. Like, right, right. You know, that would be, that would be something that would happen in a plane train. In a and normal road movie, or something, yeah. Right? Yeah. A normal road movie where, you know, you're staying the night at this old friend's house who gave you the key and you show up and there's people there. Someone already. else. Yeah, yeah. Some really uncouth guy sitting there watching Australian rules football and, and drinking and already four beers in, right? Right. Uh, so. I mean, presumably that version wouldn't have a 15-year-old girlfriend, but then again... Probably not. Depends on what era that movie was made in. Right, right, right. <laughs> and which which side of the the road movie uh, dichotomy uh, John Candy is in in this one. Right, right, yes, absolutely, yes. Uh, very true. Is he the uncouth guy at the apartment, or is he one of the drivers? <laughs> right. Anyway... Uh, but yeah, um, <laughs> I do love Harry and how, you know, he's only in the movie for what, 10 minutes. Um, and he is, it's some of the best acting in the movie because he's so, particularly when he realizes what's, what the inevitable end of his situation is here. Yeah. And, and he actually is playing it terrified, but trying to keep calm Mm-mm. is, you know, it's very it's good. extremely good acting, yeah, and and really like, I say that like no one feels bad for Harry's death, but Harry is also weirdly likable despite being a horrible, horrible person. Right, right. Like it, you're just you so also often horrible people are. Yeah, it, it's 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 a he's a very fascinating character because you're just like this guy legitimately deserves what he's getting, but also like you're just kind of like. Like man, this guy. I also love how he immediately does the thing Myron's been doing the entire time by giving away way too much information about Brodick. <laughs> right, right, yeah, yeah. It's everybody like, does oh, it Mitch, all the time. You remember me, Mitch? <laughs> yeah, everybody. Well, it's 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 really funny in that way because, like, you know, it's part of what makes it sort of almost borderline, like in the comedy genre, yeah. right? But it's like. You're like, and you think to yourself, like, Braddock's how old and has been doing this for how long? And, like, how the fuck right. has he survived this long? Because, like, like everybody reveals information about him all the fucking time, everywhere they go. And, of course, the police have, like, 25 names for him, right? 
every passport's a burner passport for Braddock because like right, every right, like right. apparently you get he gets through one one hit and it's and it's already ruined. Right. Can't use that name again. Uh I was there's a weird aspect of this movie uh that the uh the commentary didn't really get into, but did it seem uniquely obsessed with footwear to you? Uh hmm. So good question. So so Well the shoes are Parker, clear, right? Parker, when he's getting shoved into the car, drops the shoe, which right. is a clue. Yes. Just classic clue. I mean it's classic movie like crime movie but, clue kind of thing. Yeah. Braddock, as he's coming back downstairs from his off screen conversation with Maggie. You're right. Yeah. We like, have the insert shot of his yeah. shoes. Mm. Though I'd already noticed his shoes at the first gas station they stop at where the dog walks out to him. Because he's wearing these ridiculous lifters, right? He's got right. like a two-inch heel on those shoes. They're these these weird, like Spanish leather boots. Um, and then in the bends is a pair of Adidas soccer cleats hanging from the mirror. I, I not yeah. like not like full size shoes, but, but like, like the the little you know, like yeah decoration ones. Decoration ones, uh, and huh. and then when he. When Maggie needs new clothes because she's been scared into uh, pissing herself, uh, Parker also buys new shoes when they stop at those shops and and announces how much he likes the shoes as he puts them on mid-frame. Right. Yeah, that's uh, true. That's true. Yeah. Uh, so it's just very – I don't know why – like like I said, uh, I think John Hurt comments on the fact that he really liked the shoes he was wearing. But but no one else talks about the footwear, and it's just it's in there enough to feel like a motif, but it's not a motif. Well, it's weird I because get. I I feel like and it's motifs like... motifs are often accidents. Like the right. director didn't didn't, didn't mean even to put so many it. shoes yeah. in there, right? Yeah, and then but you combine that with like it could also it it's right. This one I feel like is right on the edge. Where like if there were just a little bit more, you'd be like, yeah, right, for sure, right, right. But that that's Something. probably what I feel like leans towards it being almost accidental. It's like, oh, like we just sort of accidentally put a lot of feet in this movie, a lot of shoes in this right. movie for some reason. Uh and well, you know Well another another way it feels proto proto Tarantino is they put a lot of shoes in this movie and lot instead of a lot of feet. Um Right, right. Right. But yeah. Um <laughs> yeah, uh, Tarantino. Well, Oh, Tarantino. Anyway. Uh, yeah. Um, so what I w- w- another thing that I think about, I was thinking about while I was watching the movie, was like it's also really fascinating to me, and I don't know if this is necessarily supposed to be a commentary on anything or anything like that, but like the only person in the movie with a like a legit, truly like deeply viable survival instinct is Maggie. Yes. No one else yes. is. It kind of get you get the impression that like. Like, Myron's too stupid to live, essentially. Right. Like, right. Myron is just doomed from the beginning because he's just so fucking dumb. And the conversation Maggie has in front of Myron with with Parker about overthrowing Myron. <laughs> right, like, right, right. If you help me, we can get away. Yeah. In English, in broken English. So yeah, Myron yeah. can't understand it, even though even though Parker speaks Spanish. Well, and the fascinating uh, thing is, is that during that scene, they also offer Myron the option that, like... Right. You could be part of this too. Right. Like we right. could all right. just 
leave. We'd all leave. Yeah. Like there's only there would only be one dude in our way, and that dude seems a little washed out. Um, yeah. And then you get in the like so you got you got Myron who's just too stupid to live. You've got right, right. Parker who's essentially resigned, whether or not that's an act or not. Like feels very, is plays very resigned, right? To his fate. So he's his 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 willingness to fight for his survival is basically zero. Like he has plenty right. of opportunities where he could have escaped. Um I mean again, partially because Myron's too stupid to live. Uh and then you got Braddock who's like in this weird spot where like you get the impression that like Braddock's just been worn down to a fine nub of a person where it's like right. whatever right. survival instinct he had, like whatever like desire to live he has is is like essentially running on autopilot. Like He'll fight you if you try to kill him, but he's like doesn't seem to like he's sort of like the a weird sort of reflection of William or of uh, Parker in that way, in the sense that like Parker's fully embraced it and maybe secretly hiding his will to live and fight right. for it. And Braddock is the other way; like he gives the appearance of having like this sort of like I'm still doing this. I'm gonna li- I'm gonna. I'm going to do my job and I'm going to keep going. But like really in, you get the impression from his struggles that he's, he's done. He's actually like, ready to die. Like yeah. it's just, I don't, it's just, you can just feel it. And then, and then the line, the final scene just shows you that it like, is like, by the way, in case you miss the subtext, this dude is ready to die. Like right. he's, we're going to read that fucking poem over his dead fucking body. Like, you know what I mean? It's and it's he's, and he's gonna wink at the girl as his last right. Act. Exactly. Right. It's like this man is ready to die, whether or not Parker is or not. Braddock yeah. is, um, and and so it's really a fascinating sort of commentary on the fact that Baggy's the only one, I guess, with anything to live for, basically. Um, <laughs> right. Just fascinating. Um, which also brought up an interesting point to me. I want to ask you a question because I I didn't have a chance to rewatch it. When Braddock gives up on killing Maggie, does he just, is that because, because he hits her in the head, knocks her out. Right. Does he not kill her because he just feels bad and he just doesn't want to kill her? Or is there some other reason? That is. Because he calls her like, oh, you're a lucky girl or something like that. And I can't, I could, my brain couldn't figure out what was going on. That is a point where I feel like the movie could have been more overt. Because there's there's a few possibilities. Like Parker's words did actually get to him, and he yeah. feels so bad for having killed Parker that he doesn't, you know, want to do this one more. Right. Right. She's like he's actually one. done. He's just done. Right. right. But he had just needlessly killed Myron. Right. Who is the only? Who is the person who has been arguing with him that they shouldn't kill the girl? Right. And then he decides not to kill the girl after he killed Myron. Um. Yeah, there but you also get the impression that, that Braddock maybe... actually hates Myron by this point. Like, actively right, right, like, right, dislikes right. this person very, very much. Um, right. I mean, and Myron, again, being too dumb to live, should have known that that was coming the minute, right, the minute exactly. he took his gun and threw it over a cliff. Right. Um, right? <laughs> or at least down a very long hill. Uh, right. But, yeah. So, uh, um, it's also I don't possible. Know. I, I really my... don't know why he didn't kill her. I mean, another possibility is that he finds himself admiring, to a certain extent, her, that that thing that he lacks, right? That, like, fight, like, I, you know what I mean? I could I also buy say, that. I don't like this, 
But in the commentary, Frears talks about it being a love story. That, that, uh, obviously Myron is sweet on Maggie through the whole right. thing. But that, uh, that Braddock has come to fall in love with Maggie. Uh, here's what I'll say. I, I don't, I don't accept that because I think it's, pre- it's, it's based on a, a, on a weird notion about this sort of like, I think maybe Braddock's infatuated in this. I could buy that. That like not in like not in love, but like, like like I said, I can see a world where like the reason he doesn't kill her is because he sort of like admires a thing that he sees in her that he he just does not have anymore. I think he does admire her uh, her audacity. That's of what I wanting mean. to yeah. live, too, Abs- right? Absolutely. Like, he makes he makes the one overt joke in the entire movie, and it's hilarious, and I definitely laughed out loud, but she has bitten through right. and the she's web already of his had, hand. She's already had lunch or whatever. And My- Myron's like, hey, I'm hungry. We should stop. And she's probably hungry, too. And, and Braddock just says she's already eaten, and it's hilarious. And you yeah, can no, see- it's very good. In Hurt's betrayal, he's about like Braddock's about to laugh at his own. He gives this wry little smile at his right. own joke, right? Uh, but yeah, maybe he just does ultimately respect her. Yeah, you know? see, I but think, it is it is his duty to kill her, right. and that's why he's on it the entire time. Why right. why he's insisting that they will have to do it? But I think he gets the- he doesn't want to. Right, I I think definitely he doesn't want to, and the, I think it's one of those things where like you, it's pretty easy to read that way, where it's like he gets to the end, he already did the main job and everything, he's basically given up and said like I'm, he's basically ready to die, so you you get to that he gets to that point where he's like well what's the fucking point of this, right? Like who cares? It's just all of all of that happens so quickly, right? That it's hard to understand his motivation falling together. Yeah. Yeah, and and I don't like that he's in love with her thing. I think that's more of a, of a symptom of like, a, sort of a Hollywood symptom of like, oh, that th- there is no there is no gray area between like, uh, between like, um, what's the word? Ambivalence and love between right, especially older men and younger women like. I do not believe even for a second that Braddock is in love with her. But I think Braddock sees something in her that he feels bad about. Like, he likes her and feels bad about taking that away. to like, making that not a part of the world anymore, right? Uh, yeah. And it's fascinating. It makes for a very, like, it like in saying, like, oh, he's in love with her, does it a massive disservice, right? Like, to what it, the emotions that at least... John Hurt is putting into that scene, right? Like, you know what I mean? The acting, it's doing a disservice to the acting he is doing in this movie, which is way more complex than that sort of like, right? Ba- you know, back of a napkin sort of, uh, right, right, statement. Yeah. Because he's doing some fucking, hard, like, he's, he's doing a, a job in this movie. Like, John Hurt is working hard in this movie in a way that I think a lot of the other, like with the exception of uh, Maggie, uh, Laura Del Sol, who I don't know as an actress, is probably the only other person doing that much work. 
she didn't do a lot of acting. She was a flamenco dancer by training. Uh, but just prior to this, she had starred in a film adaptation of Carmen. Okay. Um, yeah. You know, she's not a bad actress at all. No, uh, no, no. I, that's what I'm saying is that, like, in some ways, right, they have the most complex characters to play. Right. Um, in the sense, not, not to, like, rag on anybody else, but, like, Terrence Stamp's character is some sort of, like, pseudo-zinned-out ex- mafia man right. right like he just has to walk around looking calm and causing trouble right again not the shit on it he does a very good job right. uh tim roth's playing just essentially a soccer hooligan as you pointed out uh again emotionally very purposely emotionally not complex at all right like right we do every so often get a sign of myron having some deeper self but it's totally unactualized, right? Like, and on purpose, right? Like, Myron has no, has done almost no sort of and introspection. And at he all doesn't have the himself. means to actualize it either. No, right? no. Like when when he tells when he tells Braddock that it wouldn't be fair to kill Maggie. What does that even mean in in either of their worlds? That it wouldn't be fair, right? right? Well, and that's because yeah, right. Myron lacks any tools. Like he has, and and that's where you get into a really fascinating thing, right? Like, because Willie Parker, in many ways, we can understand, is different than he was partially because of the tools he maybe acquired. Like Parker's yeah. apparently just been reading fucking nonstop for right. years and years and years, and one could read that as being the thing that allows him to sort of decide to do things like turn against his compatriots and like take the deal you know what i mean like it's easy to imagine a world where like he sort of slowly acquired the tools to express his ideas um and and myron just has and that's what led him out of right right Right. and myron just doesn't have any of those tools and then so my point was is that like not this is not a bag on tim roth or anything like that but like that's not it's a purposely not complex character in some ways right so you end up with John Hurt and Laura Del Sol playing the sort of two characters who are more emotionally complex in some way in in, in ways, right? right? About like what they're feeling about the situation, and both of them do a very good job of it. Um, you know, it, it it's just it's I'm a big fan of everything about this movie. I could easily watch this movie again. Uh, in a heartbeat like it would just be an easy like i just do it right uh, it, i accidentally it, 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 did actually it presses it's, all it's... of pat's buttons every button right we've got road movies we've got we've got gangster movies that break all the convention of gangster movies we've got like you know it's got everything it, it, it even has a little bit of police procedural which is yeah like it's like you didn't even have to put that in there. It's like you were like, what's a thing that Pat enjoys watching for some unknown reason? Boom. There you go. <laughs> right. Right. It, yeah. It's very <laughs> super enjoyable. Uh, uh, and like at some ways, right, like my <laughs> whenever you put a person in like a white rayon suit with like uh, like uh synth music and like in the <laughs> 80s 
I've got to compare it with the other famous movie that is essentially that. And it's like, and as usual, this is a million times more, a million times better. Um, and, and I feel in some ways mentally, like this has hit a place where like, it's sort of supplanted quite a few movies that I think of as sort of, if, if this exists in a genre, it's sort of, mentally sort of re-jiggered that genre for me to a certain extent. Yeah. Like that sort of 80s gangster movie. I'd rather watch this than almost any 80s gangster movie I've ever seen. Right, right, uh, right. I'm trying to think of examples of ones that I like as much as this, and I can't off the top of my head. I could be wrong. There might be, They might be out there, but I can't think of them right now. Right. So. It also... It also reminded me quite a bit of Two Lane Blacktop, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, the Monty Hellman film. Um, just in the way they sort of mix and match who's having conversations in what part of the car. Right. Now, obviously, right, right. all of this takes place in one car, but um, you know, we we get rid of some characters for a scene or two sometimes. Uh, obviously, there's the extended sequence where uh, Braddock and Maggie are off alone, right. Um, but you know, it's they seem to have very clearly filmed this in an actual car, right? Uh, whether or not that is an actual drivable car, right? Right, I don't know, but right, um, obviously, it's drivable in some scenes because Tim Roth drove it between scenes, and, right? Right, right, and almost broke the movie, but uh, <laughs> um, end of movie right there, um, yeah, but uh, you know, it's it's not easy to film. <laughs> in a car and make it feel fresh every time. Right. They are no, probably, yeah. they are probably filming from every possible angle over the course of this movie. Right? right. So, yeah, they do do a lot of like a, a fascinating strategy of the movie. Right. Is that like we keep losing characters and what that does is generate an empty seat in the car that you could put a camera in and right, among right, other things. Right. right. Like, um, it's just also really fascinating to think uh, how, like, this movie has a cast of, like, nine people. Right. Like, it's a, a, a pretty long, pretty engaging film with, I mean, obviously there's a bunch of extras, right? There's a whole bunch of extra policemen and right. stuff. But there, like, There are a couple of scenes with a lot more people, but, right. <laughs> yes. I mean, yeah, it, it's just there's a lot of, I mean, I guess, you know, Again, you that's their sort of main cast, right? Like I mean, there's the other the other uh criminals in the court, right? The other gangsters in the right, court. Right. There's like, you know, all those other extra non lined characters in, in the court. There's I mean, I noticed that the that the the um the uh gas station attendant does not get a credit, <laughs> at least on the Wikipedia uh cast page, which seems like an oversight. Uh, he's like my sixth favorite character in this movie. Uh, but no, well, yeah. neither neither do the uh, neither do the bar patrons. So right, right. Well, and I was thinking about like that. I mean, I think that's just more like the way IMDb does cast as being not complete. Yeah. Uh, but like, I do, nonetheless, is I do love that cast. bar fight scene and how it how it plays. Um, and they talk about this a little in the commentary, how they didn't want it to be like a, a Western uh, right. bar fight. But, you know, it's just, 
He keeps looking back at these guys who we know are making fun of him, even though he doesn't speak the language, and that makes it worse. Uh, and then uh, he just slowly pulls out all of his weapons. Right. Well, see, what I, find, bar. what I find kind of fascinating about it also, though, is that, like, I don't speak Spanish. I don't know that they're making fun of him. Like, legitimately. Well, because... Well, they're looking reason, over at him and obviously referencing him, but I don't know what was said. I wasn't paying close the reason enough attention. I, the reason I bring that up is that, like, it it has that, it what it adds to it, at least for me, is that extra, like, sort of conte- like contextual thing about, like, you don't know, like, you're acting out of a sort of violent intuition that, like, everybody's against you, that you have no actual evidence that that's true of. You know what I mean? Like a thing that people do experience when they are around people who don't speak the same language as them is a common reaction is everybody is talking about me. Right, right, right. 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 Um, And obviously he's the sort of character who would assume that. Right, right. And get very violently angry about it. It's just fascinating because it's not a. Yes, they are talking about him, obviously, but we don't. I mean, again. If you spoke Spanish, you would know. But like, they are also laughing and joking before he shows up. Right. They right, are right. they are having a good time before he ever came. It uh, would be interesting to find out what. Uh, I wish I wish I was paying close enough attention <laughs> attention to figure out what they're actually saying. Especially um, since I would guess maybe none of those lines were like exactly scripted. You know what I mean? Right. It was probably right. a lot of like. I mean, like you, they might have, but I would also not be surprised if it's like, "Hey guys, just like joke around and have fun, and then like make fun of this guy when he gets inside." Right. You know what I mean? Like you may, they may have scripted it, but they may also have just been like, "Yeah, do whatever." <laughs> really it also may end up being like, uh, I watched the Third Man on Netflix when it was on Netflix. I don't even know if it's still on Netflix, but uh, I watched the Third Man, and it was the first time I've ever seen the Third Man with the uh the various townspeople holly interacts with where the point is that he has no idea what they're saying and doesn't understand the mm-hmm. netflix version had that stuff subtitled huh uh and is that really... because the netflix subtitles are meant to be for hearing impaired instead of yeah maybe i wonder i mean, I, it... I mean i'd be curious why they did that that's interesting to think about yeah but it really you know, I had understood that aspect of Holly as just not understanding the and like right. adds oh, yeah. to I think, yes. yeah. the foreignness of the situation he finds himself in. Right. Uh but like the what really got me was there's that scene in the third man, maybe you remember, where where the kid with the ball, who is the the son of the uh the uh landlord, uh mm-hmm that is murdered because he because he had witnessed the accident and he tells Holly right. he had witnessed the accident and then uh and the kid walks up with the ball in his hand while the crowd's gathering uh and uh and the girl tells Holly oh the the landlord was murdered we need to get out of here and the kid walks up and and pulls on it and, it, and it's very clear from the context of what's happening that the kid recognizes him and knew that Holly was in the apartment talking to his dad uh the day before and that's what he's saying. But to have that actually written out <laughs> is a right, very different right. experience than just to know. Um, so I don't feel like I want to know 
what the kids at the bar were saying. No, no, I don't think so. I, I, but, that's what. That's literally my thought. Is that like I think to yeah. a certain extent, it part of the f- sort of quote unquote fun is to like leave it ambiguous. It's like we don't right. know. Even if we they don't were actually, actually know that they're making him. fun of him right. is the point. Yeah, like yeah. like he's just attacking people because he's irrationally angry about right, right, kind right. of everything. Uh, and 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 it goes to add uh, to his characterization as this this wildly violent young man who is completely sort of unchanneled, right? Like he has no kind of nothing going on, right? Like he's got no ideas, no plans. Uh, so I mean, he has a plan, but it's not. It's a it's a very shitty plan that is not very well thought up. So. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I think that, but that is a really enjoyable scene. Uh, partially because also just the way, as you said, it's not like a western or anything like that. He just jumps these guys basically. Right. Right. And then, and then the running, on... the running away scene has this very road movie vibe of like, hurry up and get in the car. We got to go. Right. Because because Braddock's already pulling away, and <laughs> like. <laughs> And when Myron like like throws himself through the pillar of the of the patio, so it falls down and they can't chase him, it's just right, all, right, yeah. it's all very chaotic and very frenetic, and uh, and it works very well for his character. Absolutely, yeah. And yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of really good stuff in this movie. I don't know, and maybe I'm being influenced by the director's commentary where he says, "I don't know if this all works," <laughs> but. Uh, but it was a really engaging and interesting movie, and uh, yeah, definitely, definitely different to a lot of stuff we've watched for the Criterion Collection too, right? Yeah, totally. Um, no, absolutely. This is, this is maybe. I can't say it's the the first real fresh thing because we've been we've been on a string of really fresh and out there things as far right, as what the Criterion yeah. Collection has been showing us, right? Um, but uh well but i would is... say that it's the first sort of like not first obviously but like we haven't felt i hasn't felt like we've watched a quote unquote modern movie right in a while like a like we've watched mo- and then i can i don't know i think it's like partly just the vibe right like we don't get movies of this vibe hardly right at all. right like, right it is we get we get modern movies we get movies that were made recently sometimes yeah. but like they're not this um they're not they don't have this sort of like this energy and it's really hard to describe but like i'm trying to think of like modern movies we've watched and like we've watched a lot of what i would call very like slow and contemplative modern movies recently when we have watched modern movies and this is like not that it has elements of that because it actually moves at a pretty leisurely pace but it also doesn't feel like it doesn't feel I guess partially maybe it's that it doesn't feel very art housey for lack of a better that's, word. That's definitely true. Uh yeah. and I like that because we don't get movies like I get movies I like a lot here, but I don't get movies that like necessarily get me jazzed up. <laughs> and this one does. Like in a way that I'm like, man, I just watched a movie that like Wowzers! Like I, I really, really like enjoyed. I could just this is a movie I could watch just in my free time for fun, and I'd be okay. Right. 
to 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 allude to Michael Sarah's commentary on uh, Empire Passion. Yeah, uh, this is a movie. This is a movie where you could actually just invite your friends over and watch it, and you wouldn't absolutely you wouldn't would need all have to explain anything about it. You could just let it wash over you and watch it, and and people would be entertained, and they don't need to be super into movies, and they don't need right. more explanation. Uh, yeah, yeah. I don't. You yeah. don't need the background on the director or any of the actors right. or any of like. I mean, obviously, the there's movie, a whole lot the of movie context, starts right? up, and everybody's like, "Hey, that's Eric Clapton playing guitar, isn't it?" And you yeah, can yeah. say yes, and then you can just watch the movie, and then you can talk <laughs> a little bit about racism, and you can move on. Yeah. Um, but like, also, when you think about it, right? Like, it's weird because, like, obviously, the movie has context. It has, and, and probably part of it is that the context is our context, right? Like, we right. we it's or a little bit before it's before our time, but we have a you and I as people of our age have a good grasp on because it's part of the zeitgeist that we grew up in we we have a good grasp on 1984 right, right. you know what i mean and uh, part of that what we're talking about is a sort of bias for that right like it's a movie made in a time period where i don't have to explain anything to anybody that would be in the room right. with me they all already get everything that's going on here and that's right. probably true of people of other times watching other movies we've watched, but it's not true for us and the people we know who we would definitely have. I would have to explain Empire of Passion to the people I'm watching. Right, right. right. I couldn't just throw Certainly. it on. They would need Certainly some you preface. Couldn't, you couldn't just throw on in the realm of the senses. Uh, uh, I mean, I guess there's couldn't. certain parties. Uh, right. Like, I'm not sure you could you could just throw on Dudeskadin. Uh, yeah, no, absolutely not. Right, and, and then and again, of course, those movies are in some ways heavier, right? Also, even right, if in right, the right, right context, right. they are meant to be extremely contemplative, in a way that this is not. But we have watched movies that, in their own context, were probably fine to just throw on. Right, uh, but then again, if you also consider that 1984, you're right at the boundary where movies you can just throw on are becoming a thing. Because keep in mind that prior to a certain period in time in history, there was no movies you can throw on, so every movie is sort of its own event, right? Because there was no ability to throw it on, right? Right, exactly. And, and, that, yeah. and that makes a big difference in the way movies are made, right? If there's a potential that somebody might watch a movie a second time at home, 1984 is early, uh, I think. I mean, I know it's early. I, I, I hope I'm not talking on my ass. I hope, like, the beta tape wasn't invented in 1985 and I'm like ah shit well I mean even even if they were around and commercially available uh, you know VHS tapes and, and beta tapes were, were still extremely expensive. outrageously ex- I extremely that. expensive uh, okay so through, through most looks of this like decade 1980s so. is when you start seeing releases 1980 literally the year 1980 it looks like um, maybe uh, I'm getting a little. Yeah, I, the, no. the website's not great. My point is, is that like there, I think there's in general you could probably identify a noticeable shift in the way that movies are understood. I'm not certainly capable of discussing about this in detail. I don't <laughs> yeah, have the yeah. background, but like this is a movie you could throw on. Whereas, like I, I have a hard time thinking of movies we have that we could just th- that we've watched that we could just throw on. Uh, I mean, there's Armageddon. You could always throw Armageddon. On. <laughs> uh, right, right. Perennial favorite. There are certainly, 
There's, I, it won't be awkward at all when you get into that weird, uh, that weird uh, animal cracker scene. That won't be awkward at all for you and all your friends sitting around having a beer and trying to enjoy like chit chatting, and then suddenly some dude's right, doing some fine. weird safari thing on a woman's stomach. The Rock is the better choice of the Michael Bay movies in the Criterion uh, Collection, certainly. But absolutely, well, it's mostly just <laughs> Nicolas Cage, though. I mean, let's be honest right, here. Right. Perennial favorite. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh man so uh one more one more anecdote from tim roth in the commentary okay uh it was his idea for myron to be shot through the eye uh-huh and for the glasses to explode off his face uh-huh i like it every everybody was immediately like oh i like that that's good and he says it's a terrible mistake it hurt like hell and i of could have been did. blinded yeah, um, putting squibs on your fucking face is a bad, bad plan. Right, right. There's right. a reason why they would obviously do that with CG at this point. Yes. 100%. Don't fucking yes. attach explosives to your goddamn face. Also, John John Hurt, for his part, talks about uh, how holding the gun one-handed and firing uh, was something he felt was abnormal. At the time, like he was making a conscious choice to fire the oh, weapon. Oh, I can like see that. that. No, I can. I get that. No, I get that. Because, yeah, yeah, no. Because if you like watch police shows from like this, the eighties. Oh yeah, everybody's it's everybody feet it's the, apart. It's the full like yeah. It's that. Yeah. It's the it's the full like uh, like police shooter stance thing. Yeah, and so I guess yeah, that's kind of it. Kind of adds a sort of. Not necessarily as relevant now, but a sort of zest to his character, right? More uh, at the time, more right? westerny than modern gangster. Right, right, yeah, yeah. It kind of it makes him, and if you combine that with the weird boots, like with the weird shoes, and yeah, all kinds of yeah, interesting. And the weird suit, which uh, which uh, Hurt also points out uh, in the uh, in the uh, nighttime confrontation with Parker. Uh, at the waterfall where they're talking, mm-hmm. uh, they had lost the suit and the tie. So he's actually in a in a jacket that fits for once and wearing <laughs> a different tie in right. uh, in that scene. Uh, but it's also dark, so I don't. I didn't notice it, and I don't know that he says no one ever notices it. Right, right. Is understandable, right? <laughs> but, yeah, but at the same time, it's like kind of like when you start thinking about it, right? Like. I, I didn't think about it when when I was watching it, but like, there's a lot of work done to make John Hurt's character just a weirdo you're going to remember, right? Like right. to just sort of weirdify him to the point where like, you it makes him more believable, I guess, as a hitman because he's just so fucking weird. Oh yeah, the dude who's killed people his whole life—that's a weirdo. He should be a I mean, weirdo. To a to a certain extent, Braddock and Parker are uh, the ego and the id of the main character of the Samurai split split apart. <laughs> right? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Right? for sure. Yeah, uh, which is kind of interesting, but uh, but yeah, because he's just because they're both weird. Yeah, and also the guy in the Samurai was weird. I mean, um, the guy in the Samurai is. A little too too weird for a my taste. Too weird. Yeah. yeah, yeah. There's so I think I described it at the time as just feeling like pure affectation, right? Like all the time. That's all right. it feels like. Right, right, right. It feels like a right. thing that somebody in Brooklyn's doing right now. Um, 
So, but if we are to believe that it was all a put on until the final moments when he breaks, Parker is pure affectation. That's also yeah, and, totally, absolutely. And the way Braddock is dressed is is, is, is a is, weird affectation. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it could also be the fine. I mean, Braddock's hard to to pin down, right? Because assuming he's constantly throwing his clothes away and changing right, right. like he just buys whatever fucking shit he can find at any given time right it just looks like a weirdo because he can never get matching clothes that fit properly right, right like you know hard to say i also really like the fact that myron looks like he just desperately wants to be in top gun just so bad <laughs> which i feel is perfect yes it's yes. like what movie is this top gun you say uh it's just that it's that the, it's the fucking aviators and the jacket and like it's not even like Top Gun comes after this movie. Hair. Yeah. This is before yeah. Top Gun, but it feels like he should be in Top Gun or at least he dressed yeah. for Top Gun. Like somebody was like, "Oh, we the costume designer uh, has something for you. Um, it's for a the costume designer has been to the future uh, yeah. and has seen this movie called Top Gun, and we have your costume for you." Also, it's I just do love, but whatever. I do love that we see more of Myron's uh, menagerie of weaponry than he actually uses on film. Yeah, like yeah. the one time he opens the jacket and there's just like three darts. On yeah, the and you're like, what? Like, yeah. Okay. Well, I'm kind also of glad fascinated. You never by, used those, but okay. I'm also kind of fascinated by the idea that 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 um, Myron's weapons are their own affectation, right? Like. He has all these things, but they're mostly, you know what I mean? There's a certain sort of, he has a certain sort of bravado about it where it's like, right. You get the impression that half of his life has been like showing those to people to prove his point without actually necessarily using them. Cause there's no way he's getting use out of all that shit. Like it's just, you're not a fucking ninja where you got darts for and shit. Like, what are you talking about? Like, so like he uses the, 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 like the brass knuckle things. And he uses the super heavy like throwing star thing. Yeah, is what the fuck is that? Throw... What is it? Is it something to That's hold like a brass is... knuckle, or is it? I like, what think... is its? What even is its functionality in that scene? I, I think I he's think he tried to make his. I think he tries to make it. I don't think he even uses it. I think he just tried to make his own throwing star and is just bad at it. Yeah. Maybe uh, like because he made his other weapons in shop class. Keep that in mind. Right, he made right, his like right. his blackjack in shop class because he's like Fair. nineteen years old or something. Him and Maggie <laughs> right. are basically the same. And Maggie might legitimately be older than him. Right. Um, in the in the actual like in, in universe, um, it's like to a certain extent, right, you get into this question about how much of Myron is just affectation, right? Like, how much of Myron is just a show that Myron has learned to put on to protect himself? And probably a fair amount of it, right? Like, he's wild and crazy probably to a certain extent because that is its own form of protection, right? And he shows off these weapons as an intimidation technique that has very little to do with his actual ability to use any of them for any meaningful purpose other than the thing he hits people in the head with, the simplest of weapons. The black chair. Like, Tim Roth I'm going to hit you in the head. With... Tim Roth yeah. is actually six months older than Laura Del Sol, but... 
Okay. Anyway, not that that affects I how was, old the characters I are. Was, I was just pointing out that, I just, like... I, was, I looked it up because I thought she might legitimately be older than him in real life, and she she's not, but barely. But still, so. it's barely, right? Like, I mean, in, yeah. in the story, it's very easy to believe that, sh- that he is younger right. than her. Right, right. Actually, right. because we all know that 15 is bullshit, and you could easily believe she's in her 20s. Uh, yeah. And then, you know, he, like, is a kid, like, a legitimately just a kid. And just the way he talks about his experience on the movie is not how a 23-year-old should be. It's like, this is the first time I was out of the country. First, Madrid was the first uh, first international, like, big city I'd ever been in. It was the first time I'd ever been on an airplane. It's the first time I ever drove right. a car. Like... Yeah, he's just a it's kid. Just very, like it's crazy. Yeah, yeah, he really is just a kid. But he does a very good job his, of being that kid. It's oh excellent. yeah, yeah, he's fun. Uh, he also talks about the just the fact that you know the three or even four of them in the car are just like totally different schools of acting through the whole. Like John Hurt and Terrence Stamp are maybe you know from the same age of acting, but but Roth is this new school fell into it doesn't know what he's doing right laura de soul is uh literally you know, a, a, is, a dancer right yeah by trade yeah like it's a fantastic movie yeah like i said it's very very fun to watch very interesting i did accidentally sort of uh watch it twice uh just because the way the criterion channel works it started playing the version of it with commentary and i just didn't hit stop so right i did sort of let it roll watch it twice in a row um but yeah it was super fun and I'm glad to have watched it. It was the uh, the hit directed by Stephen Frears. As I said, we'll see uh, we'll see from Frears again in the future, but in the distant future. It's uh, 300 spine numbers away, so <laughs> it'll be a while. But uh, but yeah, next week we'll be talking about a John Huston film, uh, 1979 uh, dark comedy Wise Blood, which I'm kind of looking forward to one it's based on a flannery o'connor story uh also it's got ned Beatty, harry dean stanton and brad dorff in it uh so i'm pretty uh, excited like let's be I'm very pretty clear. excited, I'm pretty excited. <laughs> right yeah so uh sure we'll enjoy that but uh thank you so much for listening to lost in criterion i'm as always the adam glass with me as always john patrick otari dorian and we'll see you next week Criterion. I'm your co-host Adam Glass. You can find me on Twitter at the Adam Glass. My partner is John Patrick Oitari Dorgan, and you can find him at J Patrick Dorgan. Check out more of the show at LostInCriterion.com, or hey, give us a review on iTunes. It's nice. If you really like what you hear, consider supporting us at Patreon.com/LostInCriterion. Hey, our theme music is by Jonathan Hape. Check him out at JonathanHape.com. And thanks for listening. We appreciate it.